Listening Dog Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks, darling. Um, big love to Claire. Yeah, I will. Claire's the other side of the glass. She's about to start doing her weather. She now does hers from home. So. Oh, my um, God. Will you tell her? Just, just shout weird. badger at her. She'll know it. She'll know what I mean. Claire, Emma says badger. <laughs> she says, oh, bless her, badger. Um. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. What will I learn today? How will I learn to tell this story differently? Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. It's really important for music fans to be behind the mic. A woman would come up to me and say, I never even considered being a DJ. Wow, you just inspired me. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds, and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. It's about this really welcoming, inclusive environment that is spotted with your own personality. And with me now is a DJ who was at Radio 1. I was in the right place at the right time. I had a, There was a lot of luck. I worked very hard to get there. Heart. What do you mean I have to read my own travel? Hello. And now hosts Afternoons on Magic. It's made me a better broadcaster, I think, commercial radio. She's been a national radio host for more than 20 years, as well as presenting music TV shows. He said, who is that voice in my head? Who is the voice? It's like really painful and grim and it's not nice listening to yourself. I know that we live a gifted life. I know that um, I know that what we do is really silly. It's a daft job and we play records and talk out loud. But, um, you know, not everyone can do it. I don't know. I don't, I'm, a, I'm a nice person to have around. Um, and being myself is all I've got. Emma B is with me. Hi, Emma. Hey, I'm still reeling from being called a much-loved DJ. I'm liking that. <laughs> it's so true, and you've been in it a long time. What are your earliest memories of listening to the radio? They're so clear, and we had music and radio on all the time in the house. And my first memories were Kenny Everett and copying his accents and his characters' voices and being absolutely enthralled by what was coming out of the radio and how he did that with such ease and it made me laugh and it made me smile and I couldn't wait to hear the next one. And then me and my brother used to listen to the Top 40. It was so exciting and you didn't know who was going to be number one and we used to have a thumbs up if a record that we liked went up the chart and a thumbs down if it went down the chart and ooh, if it stayed the same. And I just remember it being a world of really exciting things. It was just so much fun. I fell in love with it immediately. Yeah, for me, it was the one-to-one nature of radio was what appealed to me. I'm not sure that I was aware of that being the case as a kid, but I felt like the radio did talk to me as an individual, me personally. Yeah, absolutely. And to have that sort of level of excitement in your living room. You know, for some reason, if you watch Top of the Pops on the telly, it was all very glamorous and very far away and, you know, massively aspirational. But, you know, Kenny Everett and all those guys, those early Radio 1 days, I felt were my friends. I felt like I was part of their gang. 
if I were to meet them in Tesco's, I could happily go and say hello and, you know, recount a sketch that he'd done the week before. And to have that level of excitement as a kid in your living room or in the car was just really engaging. It was very magical. Were you into music at the time? Well, yeah, we had music. I mean, my, oh my God, like my dad always was a, an early riser and so it always used to get us out of bed. But he used to, you know, the old reel-to-reel, he used to record the top 40 and then he would play it back and get us all out of bed. So, you know, I would regularly wake up on a Sunday morning with Boney M or Abba or whatever coming out the stereos, half going, Dad, shut up. And then two minutes later going, well, this is brilliant. Okay, let's get out of bed because this is really cool. As a teen, what were you into? Oh, my goodness me. I was a hopeless, hopeless pop addict. I grew up in Birmingham, so we were all completely obsessed with Duran Duran. And I was that kid that would cut the lyrics out of smash hits and put them on my wardrobes and then kiss Roger Taylor goodnight every night. And then that sort of peaked as well, watching. It was probably Hungry Like the Wolf or Wild Boys or one of those when that was on Top of the Pops on the telly. And I literally, my mum had to give me a paper bag to breathe into because I was hyperventilating and the tears were pouring from my eyes. And, you know, that level of being a fan, I never, I kind of look back and go, God, no, I did. Because you look at kids and Beatlemania and stuff and go, that's silly. How can anybody feel like that? Robbie Williams has just left take. That's not the end of the world. And had I met any of them at that time, I almost certainly would have fainted. Have you ever met any of them since? Yes, I have. I hate the fact that you said that. <laughs> I was, it was notoriously one of my worst interviews ever when I had to interview John Taylor on the telephone, like down the line. And he was in LA and they said, oh, can you do John Taylor? Was I was at Radio 1. I was yeah, 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 cool. And it was awful. I stumbled on my words. I couldn't even see the man and I was blushing and I was fawning over him like an absolute idiot. It was like no choice. You ask anyone who knows me, it was like the worst interview I've ever done in my life. So we'll back away from that one. So your career then managed to combine two of your first loves, radio and music. When was your first paid radio gig, Emma? This is going to sound awful. My first paid radio gig was at Radio 1. Um, Wow. I know. Uh, In retrospect, I'm not entirely sure I did it the right way around. I mean, I'd been doing radio since I was eight at Radio Oxford with Timmy Mallet and then Radio Caroline on the ship that was the Thecla that was in Bristol for a bit. I did student radio. I did radio at Devonair and had never been paid for any of it. And then through various different turns of the path, ended up on Radio One. And that was my first paid radio gig. So I was in the right place at the right time. There was a lot of luck. I worked very hard to get there. Lots of encouragement by Mark Goodyear and I was, you know, he was my mentor and he would pick me up at silly o'clock in the morning and take me into Radio 1 where I just sat in the studio and practiced for hours and hours and hours. And eventually they were looking for someone like me and that was it. So my first paid radio gig was Radio 1. What a grounding though, before the Timmy Mallet you mentioned. <laughs> a great broadcaster. Um, an amazing broadcaster. You know, I learned a lot from those old school DJs. In the 90s, I was working in record labels and everything was super cool. And, you know, I tried really hard to be really cool and know everything about the right clothes and the right bands and the right places to be. And actually, some of those old school DJs teach you something really important, which is, you know, you always have to remember that radio is 
the most empathetic medium around. It is not about you. It's about bringing people in. It's about, you know, making people feel like they're part of a family. It's about talking to one person. It's about this really welcoming, inclusive environment that is spotted with your own personality. And, you know, I learned a lot from the Mark Goodyears, a lot from the Timmy Mallets, a lot from the Tony Blackburns. And I think actually in later life, it's been incredibly helpful. It's funny analysing all of what you've just said, because I sometimes feel it makes what we do sound contrived. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It takes a lot of skill to be yourself. It really, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> it takes a lot of practice. But I think it's really interesting, Chris, because I know that we live a gifted life. I know that what we do is really silly. It's a daft job and we play records and talk out loud. But, you know, not everyone can do it. And I feel like I'm always still constantly learning about how to say things better, how to, you know, remind myself of the world that we're in and what people want to listen to and what people want to hear. And during the pandemic, I don't know about you, and I'm very sure you did, but we got so much feedback from listeners who were so grateful for having a friend, you know, for people who were isolated on their own for months, for them to feel like we were talking directly to them, for keeping the mood light, for keeping, you know, playing the songs that are meaningful to people. I think radio really came into its own. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. Christian O'Connell on a previous episode of this podcast talked about the turning point for him in his career when he learned to talk about himself and how it took years to get to the point at which he was confident in sharing his life. And after that, yeah. his shows just got better and better and his popularity went through the roof. Yeah. You see, I'm not a comedian. Um, I'm not a comedian. She said sounding ridiculously but brummy then. I don't know what happened, but I'm not. And I think you take people like sort of the Chris Moyles of the world that are full of content and jokes and characters and plots. And that is an incredible skill. I've still got so much respect for Moyles and the team and that those early Radio 1 breakfast shows. That's very much from those Kenny Everett times. And then there are people like me, I guess, who are... I don't know. I don't, I'm, a, I'm a nice person to have around. And being myself is all I've got. I think people really relate to that. And I think the biggest compliment that I ever get is when I meet people and they're like, oh, my God, you're just like you are on the radio. And that means a lot to me. That's cool. That means I'm doing my job. And also, you know, I mess up and I'm rubbish at loads of stuff and I get stressed and we've got kids and I've got dogs that poo in the wrong place and cookery, you know, lessons that go completely wrong and I'm late all the time. and I think that's what radio does so well is that we are all in this together. And I am like you, I'm a human being. And that's all I've got because I haven't got a box full of jokes. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, same as anyone who listens to me will know. Um, <laughs> Emma, when you said you practiced at Radio One, what did you do? So when I was practicing at Radio One, Mark Goodyear, who was my first agent and my sort of big radio mentor, would pick me up and drive me in and he'd do his show. And I'd kind of be a bit of a runner, so I'd answer some calls and, you know, do some bits and pieces and just got used to being in the studio and then being around watching and learning how a proper radio show worked. And then I would sit in another studio in the basement of Radio One and talk and learn how to get from one record to another record, uh, learn how to structure my links, learn how to stop waffling, listen to myself back. I did so much listening back, so much listening back. 
And Radio 1, when I was there, also we did a lot of listening back, which was something that I always encourage new DJs to do. It's like really painful and grim and it's not nice listening to yourself. But you very quickly learn about how you sound and words that you repeat and all sorts of stuff like that. So I would just pretend to do a show, essentially. He'd give me one of his old Radio 1 scripts and I'd start talking between the songs and think of things to say. And I've still got some of those recordings, which is really fun to go back and listen to, actually. What do you remember about that very first show at Radio 1? Oh, my God. My heart rate's just gone up thinking about that. It was in the middle of the night. They gave me overnights. I think it was probably Saturday into Sunday, actually. And my producer was a guy called Mick Meadows. And Mick was a very experienced producer there. And like anyone who knows me knows, and if I ever work with a producer, one of the first things that I say is, please don't buy me coffee in the middle of a show. If I ever ask you for a coffee, just say no, get on with it. because I'm very sensitive to caffeine and it makes me feel sick and I get palpitations. And on this occasion, I'd come in and because I thought I was really cool, I was like, yeah, I'll definitely go and get like a pint of coffee from Starbucks on the way in because that's what DJs do when you're in London. And I'd had about a pint of coffee and my I was sweating and my heart was racing. And Mick Meadows, my producer, was just like, what's going on? I'm like, I had to go and lie down. And Eventually, I kind of calmed my nerves and got around to doing it. And we'd pre-recorded the top links. When you start an hour in radio, often there's things like news and weather. There's a lot of buttons to press and going on. And so to sort of reduce the stress, we'd recorded those first two links. And I've still got my script, Chris, from my first ever show with all the records on. And my first song that I ever played was an Adam F song, Circles, was it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. cool, huh? And he, Mick, made a sign and stuck it on a like a broom, which was, where's Emma? And every time I looked at it, it was basically reminding me to be myself. And it was amazing. It was an amazing thing to do. And often, even now, 20 odd years later, I will write it down while I'm mid-show, where's Emma, just to remind myself to just focus and be myself. Was that day life-changing for you? It was. A couple of things. I was quite ambitious kid, so it wasn't like I didn't think it wasn't possible. I just, I'm a bit like a dog with a bone. I just keep going, and I think that's the only reason why I've ever got jobs is because I just basically pester people until they have to shut me up. There's like no discernible talent here at all. I just annoy my way into things. So it was life-changing. I think I was just really enjoying the radio, so I probably didn't notice it being life-changing. I just love the radio. I loved being around Radio 1. I loved being in the studio. I loved doing what I knew I could do. I think moving from the early mornings and the overnights into mainstream Radio 1 was more life-changing, and that was all about being known and recognised, and that was definitely life-changing and not all good. But I think for me, radio has just been part of my life for so long that I just knew I was going to do it. I just knew it was going to be part of my life somehow, and to be doing it at Radio 1 was fantastic, but I didn't really notice the life change until a bit later on. Now, the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box that I've got here at my side. Awesome. All the questions are on 45 Steve's. Um, (laughs) I'll dip in and pull one out when you say when. Okay. When? What's the most famous you've ever felt? Um, Okay, the most famous I've ever felt was when 
I used to do lots and lots of voiceovers and I was the voice of the Brit Awards for a long time. If you were watching on the telly, I would be the person that said, and the Arctic Monkeys are up on stage for their third award of the night. And I did the voiceover for the MTV Music Awards in Munich. So I was rehearsing during the day with Dave Grohl and Snoop Dogg. And I was introduced to both of them shortly after Snoop Dogg had asked a question in rehearsals and he'd said onto the mic, which had gone out into the auditorium, he said, who is that voice in my head? Who is the voice? And I sort of, hello, it's me. I'm Emma B. And he said, you're giving me an eargasm. And I thought (laughs) that was pretty flash. He met me afterwards and we had a few drinks together. And that was, I thought, okay, I'm definitely in a crowd of flashy, fancy people. That was quite nice. I assumed you were going to say a Radio 1 roadshow. The Radio 1 roadshows were really amazing. And uh, I'm just standing on a stage in front of 70,000 people in Plymouth playing drums with five was quite fun. They were also like a slog. It was really hard work because they used to put me out on the road for like five weeks at a time. So the likes of Dave Pierce and Simon Mayo would come and go and I would do the whole lot. And I didn't even realise for a while just how big they were. The Plymouth one was extraordinary. Standing on that stage with a microphone was quite a rush, I have to say. Was it a big change when you left Radio 1 and went to Heart? Not as much as you'd think. I think the thing is, is that because I'd started at Radio 1, it took me a long time to leave. And I probably stayed a few years longer than I ought to have done. But it was because I'd sort of cut my teeth there. And so leaving was a huge deal. Would anybody else want me? Was life outside Radio 1 worth living? It transpired absolutely yes, but it was a huge deal. And at the time, however, I went to do a really big show at heart. I went to do Drive Time. Eventually that did super, super well. And at the time, commercial radio, we had George Michael playing on the rooftop of the building and Cheryl Cole and all the girls. I mean, there were people in the building all the time. And it was really, really exciting. And so actually for me, because I'd come from doing the Sunday surgery as well, which was Radio 1's Agony Aunt show, it was a really a lovely change to go from something that was really intense and talk-based to going back to being able to celebrate music. And it was a really scary time, but it was also a massive new challenge. And it was amazing. I had the best time for a very long time at heart in those early drive time days. It was really, really good fun. What are the key differences for you between the BBC and commercial radio? The first thing is that you have the luxury of people. You know, the first few weeks I was like, what do you you mean I have to read my own travel? Hello? You know, those kind of things. But it does teach you so much about being self-sufficient. And, you know, you can't rest on your laurels in commercial radio. You have to be the content gatherer. You have to be the person that goes and pushes the show forward. You have to be the person that finds out about, you know, Adele's residency. You have to be those people. My technical ability went through the roof because, you know, you have to be able to answer some of those technical questions in the moment yourself. I think it also made me a lot more efficient with my words. It's made me a better broadcaster, I think, commercial radio. You can't waffle on. You have to be able to get to the point. It's like, you know, the thing that Twitter made us all really good at was being able to say things in a certain number of letters. And and actually, if you kind of use that as a comparison, it was learning how to get the best out of a link 
So instead of a link being four minutes long, you could definitely say the same thing, but better in half the time. And I think actually in that respect, it has made me a better broadcaster. I do miss being able to talk for longer. I do miss the freedom of, you know, not be duty bound by ads, but equally, you know, there are things to be gained for sure. And I love commercial radio. You know, they have to fight for every listener. And, you know, in the pandemic and during COVID, advertising budgets have been appalling for everybody and all the, you know, local commercial radio stations that are complete lifelines to, you know, local communities have been so badly affected. And, you know, the BBC probably and lots of people who work for the BBC have really had time to kind of understand that that luxury of, of not being beholden to advertising revenues. Another question from the box now. You say when? Okay. When? <laughs> Who do you have to thank? Uh, two people. I've mentioned them always, Timmy Mallet, for giving me my first radio gig when I was eight on BBC Radio Oxford. And he'd written a radio drama for kids called Prince Timmy and the Golden Tranny, which meant something different back in the day. It probably doesn't convert well into 2022. But essentially, Prince Timmy was a hero and he was a bit rubbish. So he needed a dynamic sidekick. And I was the dynamic sidekick called Susan Zink. And he used to pay me in seven inches. So I, I have like the buggles and video killed the radio star on seven inches and all sorts of bits of vinyl that used to throw my way. And it would be recorded as a radio play. So, you know, footsteps in gravel and all sorts of sound effects and things like that. And it was a joy. And we're still friends now. And that was my first experience. So obviously, as a kid, I'm going to fall in love with radio with that kind of experience. And then Mark Goodyear, who really took me under his wing and taught me everything he knew and trusted me as somebody that was completely unknown and trusted me enough to thrust me into a really big gig right in at the deep end and see how I got on. And, you know, for that, I'll be forever grateful. Mark would be a good person to get on this podcast, wouldn't he? Yeah. Uh, back into the box now then for a third question, Emma. All right then. So say when. Yeah. I, I need to hear you ruffling. Are you actually ruffling through? Well, the, are I you? I can ruffle. Ruffle, yeah. go on. When? <laughs> <laughs> All right. The one that's yeah. come out this time is, do you still get nervous? Uh, yes, a little tiny bit. I don't know whether it's nerves anymore or excitement. I still get excited by being on live radio. I think I know what I'm doing now. So I don't get nervous that things are going to go wrong. I don't get nervous that I'm going to say the wrong thing. I still feel like every single time I'm on the radio and it's live and I open my mic, there's an occasion. And we've got loads of fancy beds and loads of production on the show. And it's all sort of mashed up together with these great musical mixes. And, and I kind of just go, oh, my God, this is so ace. I'm so, I love my job, <laughs> you know, and I'll get up and have a dance around. So I still feel very much like it's an occasion. And I love that. I'm super grateful for it. And I'm so glad that we're doing it live again because during the pandemic, we've been from home. And those have been like little pre-recorded links that you do about five minutes before they go out because of the technology that we've had. And it's just not the same. My focus level is on a different level completely when I'm live. And you never know where it's going to go. And that's half the fun, right? Is there's an element of risk. Yeah, for sure. It seems like you've got a perfect gig doing afternoons on Magic. And <laughs> judging by your TikToks, you're really loving it. I had some time out a while back and I did a nine to five proper job. I worked for a charity and coming back into it, I had to really think really long and hard about what I wanted, you know, if I was going to do it again. And it's really important for me now to be working with nice people and working in supportive environments and Magic is absolutely that. 
I know what everyone's doing at that time. You know, it's school run time. It's that dip in the afternoon before the mayhem starts again. And I've been there with my kids and I think it's an audience that I recognize and know. And we have a really fun time together. We get, you know, there's loads of interaction and I've been the kind of person that's always been grasping for the next thing. And actually, I think I'm really in a happy place at the moment, if the truth be known, Chris. And I'm I'm quite happy getting on with what I'm doing and enjoying the music, enjoying the people and enjoying doing live radio. And, you know, they let me be daft on social media. So I apologise to my teenagers. <laughs> They're so embarrassed about my TikToks and my Instagram reels. DJ, DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. Well, I'm not going to tell you that, am I? That's secrets of the trade. <laughs> If you practice your craft and you keep practicing, you should be able to deal with it in a really fun way. Yeah, absolutely. I love not knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. Into the box again for question four from you, Emma. I'll give it a good uh, rattle if, if Yes, please, please. Authentic Russell's. Yeah, okay. there you go. When? Okay. Uh, question four. How much prep do you do? Well, I'm not going to tell you that, am I? That's secrets of the trade. <laughs> How much prep do I do? Okay, this is my routine. I like to be in uh, the studio or in the building at least an hour beforehand. I don't like to be rushed. I like to have the music planned. I will plan some links that I will have a brief idea about what I'm going to say. I have a notebook that I carry around with me that I write things down in all the time. I have a Trello board. Do you know Trello? God, can't live without Trello now. It's awesome. No. What is Trello? It's an app. It's a website, an organizational website. So you just get, I get loads. It's just brilliant for writing ideas down and they get ticked off and you can move them around. And yeah, for my chaotic mind, it's brilliant. (laughs) And so I, I do that. But also, what everyone loves about radio is serendipity, you know, because you can't get that from Spotify. You can't get that from playlists. Serendipity is a magical formula that makes people smile and makes you go, oh, my God, I didn't expect that to happen. And it's meant everything to me in this moment at this time. So whilst planning and structures are important to me, I also love the fact that radio is live and anything can happen. And I think what you do is if you practice your craft and you keep practicing and you, you know, you get used to writing things down and working out how a link is going to sound, then when something funny does come up that you didn't expect, you should be able to deal with it in a really fun way. Yeah, absolutely. I love not knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. One last question from the box, Emma. You say when? When? If you weren't a DJ, what would you be? Uh, Not very happy. Um, It makes me really happy. I don't know. I had, when I was a kid, I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau and be um, a marine biologist. I think if I had my time again and this wasn't an option um, or being in the performing arts of some variety wasn't an option because you'd struggle to get me away from either a stage or a microphone, to be fair. I'd like to do something outside. As I get older, I love being outside more and more and more and traveling. Maybe I could be like, what's his chops? and go off around the world doing documentaries about interesting places. Simon Reeve. That's it. I'd be Simon Reeve. Simone Reeve. A very attractive man in a cagoule. Nice. Thank you so much, <laughs> Emma. They were your questions from the box. I've now got one last question for you. It's the end of the world, and oh God, you're going to play to a global audience. You've got three records to play at the very end of the world. What would they be? <gasps> 
queen, you're my best friend. Nice. I think that, uh, yeah, you're my best friend is unbelievably beautiful. It's so simple and so tiny and so little to write something like that and be able to be part of the writing of a song like that. And that is a gem of a record. And it's so soft and hopeful and gentle and reassuring. I think if everything was about to go completely tits up, then, you know, that would soften the blow somewhat for sure. Okay. You've got to pick three. Jeez, I know. Uh, What do I always go back to? (laughs) I think I would probably have to pick a Duran Duran record because that was when I became a fully fledged music fan and it would have to be the reflex. That was maximum Duran Duran fandom. If I heard that, that would just bring me right back to my happy place for many, many, many years. And it's a huge song as well. There are so many layers of production. They were so handsome at the time. It makes me feel glamorous still listening to it. Um, Yeah, if I was going to go out, I would go out on a high. That would be it. Yep, brilliant record. And one more. Okay, it's an Oasis record. I worked with Oasis back in the day when I was at Creation Records and I was in the middle of what felt like a seismic shift in music. And when we went to see them as a company play at Main Road and they did Rock and Roll Star, I think if the world was about to end, that moment was as explosive. (laughs) If we could replay that moment and be there again, we would almost beat the world to it. It was extraordinary. And that was the most intense live and most incredible live moment I've ever witnessed. Um, And I would love to be in that crowd again. So it would have to be live, but Rock and Roll Star by Oasis. Three excellent choices. Uh, Freddie Mercury and Duran Duran and Oasis. That'll do for me. Uh, Emma, thank you so much. Emma B, thank you. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. 